This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the weeks for a brand new year. We have been on an extended summer vacation, in case you hadn't noticed, and we hope that you've enjoyed your break too. In this episode, recorded at the end of last year, 2023, the Wigs examined a recent decision of the New South Wales District Court, Judge New Lines in R. V. Martinez. The judgment has already been the subject of much media attention and concerns a successful costs application made by Martinez following their acquittal on four charges of sexual assault. The judge, in awarding a cost certificate to the accused, made scathing criticisms of the Director of Public Prosecution and raised concerns that in sexual offence matters, the DPP is applying a surreptitious and improper policy under which sexual offences are prosecuted without proper regard to the strength of the Crown case. The DPP responded furiously to the judgment, publicly stating a judicial commission complaint would be made against Judge Newlines. The case raises unusual factual matters and interestingly legal and policy matters. I'm uh, your host, Jim Minns, and I'm joined by random order Felicity Graham. Hello, Jim Minns. Hello. Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Hi, Jim. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I think you, I think we need a little. Hello, Jim. Next, yeah, there we go. Uh, welcome aboard, Thank Stephen you. Lawrence. Welcome to your office. Hello, hello. I thought I'd already been talking, but yeah, hello. Sorry. Well, oh, you have MLC. Yeah. Oh, MLC. Mm. So, uh, Felicity Graham, um, bit of a tame one. Just just should take about ten minutes. This one, right? Just a, mm. just a little. Not much to discuss. No, it's just a tick and flick. What have we? What have we got? <laughs> We, so you don't know, do you, Jim? I do, because I told you my organisation's position. Yeah. That's why you okay, 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 that's okay. That's why okay. I gave it the big intro. That's right. true, that's true. Smash okay. it, go. So we're going to talk about a case of the King and Martinez. 2023 New South Wales District Court 552, a decision of... Judge Newland's new appointment this year mm. was a civil silk. Yeah, well regarded. Well civil regarded, silk. civil silk, and I love it when the civil silks start doing crime. I think. Yeah, they're very. They really they, they bring a they bring a freshness to it that mm. I. They do. Yeah. They're not jaded by their own experience of how hopeless the system can be. No, I think on on I think quite, and on the contrary, they bring I think expectations of norms that. I think other lawyers have that apply in the criminal. When you look outside, you think this is the way it's done, and then when you get there and see it, it can be quite mm. a shock. And Almost also like I think a naivety sometimes. Procedural you know? expectations Not in a on bad the crown, way, but for in example. The like, these are the foundational principles. I'm going to apply them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Where some jaded judges are like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure, but I'll give the crown the adjournment or I'll let the evidence yeah. in yeah. or whatever. Uh, yeah. So um, – the judgment that we're going to discuss is a costs certificate application. Martinez was successful and the decision followed a trial where Martinez was acquitted of four counts of sexual assault. Now, we did – just sort of, sorry to interrupt. We did a costs order last episode? Or yeah, so the – the case yeah. of Rodden, yeah. we discussed in a previous episode quite recently. Can I just say, we got a lot of good feedback on that episode. And I have a shout out to someone who gave particularly good feedback. Longtime fan, Ben Trainer. Been waiting for this shout out for a full year. There you go, Ben. I just delivered it. Hey, Ben. Hi, Ben. 
Three out of four. Say hello to Ben. Okay, there you go, Ben. I didn't listen mean up. that disrespectfully. Now, stop just... bugging me about it, Ben. Back all right, you. listen up, Ben, and all our <laughs> listeners. Let's roll on. So, Martinez, uh, as I said, acquitted in relation to counts of sexual assault. The basic factual scenario was that the uh, complainant and the accused had met online at some point. They uh, met up at the complainant's home. They had sexual intercourse. The complainant who uh, had a tendency to drink alcohol to the point of alcoholic blackout and a tendency to then have sex with men or um, others and then assert only because she did not remember the event on account of alcoholic blackout that she had been sexually assaulted. So how was that tendency established? How was the fact she had that tendency? How was that tendency established? There was another person who uh, Judge Newlands refers to as CG against whom the complainant had made allegations of sexual assault. And, in fact, the accused Martinez had been a support person to the complainant when she went to the police in respect of those complaints. And because of that connected set of circumstances, notwithstanding the provisions of Section 294CB, formerly 293 of the Criminal Procedure Act, which has the effect of excluding evidence of prior sexual history of a complainant, uh, it was let in. And there was also evidence from a toxicologist about the way that drinking alcohol and alcoholic blackout can work or does work Mm. to the extent that someone can, particularly if they're quite a heavy drinker, which it seems that this complainant was, um, they can exhibit signs of behaving in a totally coherent and logical and seemingly, um, you know, maybe to some extent intoxicated but not Mm. unable to consent or unable to kind of control Mm. their actions and so on and then have an alcoholic blackout to the extent that the intoxication was at such a level that they just don't remember. So I did a case where this came up, right? And the expert evidence, which may be the same expert who gave evidence in this case, I don't know, because it was a police expert. Her name is Maria, I think someone. She had a European surname. Her evidence in the case I did was that alcoholic blackout or alcohol blackout and grey out, because there's two two distinct phenomena, can kick in at 0.07.08. What's that? Like, that's not mid-range. that intoxicated at all. That's like mid-range. So, you're just over 0.05. Like, like three or four drinks or something Correct. Like that. And that you, for instance, could be not even necessarily visibly intoxicated to the other person, mm. but you will subsequently have no memory of it. Because this is coming up in a bit of a famous case. It's uh, happening parallel to this discussion. E- indeed, mm. yeah. But the case that I did was concerned, I think, with the phenomena grey out where you don't completely lose the memory. So it's not like the person that goes to 10 pubs on a pub crawl but only remember six. It's more part of the incident you remember and part you don't. 
which can become very relevant in these mm. types of cases where you subsequently might think that you'd been unconscious at a particular point and, and then emerged into consciousness, but in fact you were conscious the whole time, mm. but your memory is not formed correctly. And that can, and this was the case theory in the case I'm thinking of, can lead people to the conclusion that they've been sexually assaulted while unconscious. Mm. And it's a very interesting area of academic research and expert opinion. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it was quite important in this particular case. Um, so, the in the in the aftermath, the next morning, the complainant engages in a series of text messages with the accused and um, she tells the accused that she has no memory of the evening and asks whether they'd had sex and what were the circumstances. And the accused said, how much context would you like here checking for your well-being? And then the complainant responded, I mean, context is helpful. Um, and then the, the exchange goes back and forth, but Basically, the accused gives an account that, yes, we had sex, we did these various sex acts. Um, it was all consensual as far as I um, was concerned. We talked about consent. We even talked about consent in the context of you having been drinking alcohol and um, you never told me how much you drank, um, but... Um, I, you know, the back and forth happened and I believed that it was consensual. And then the complainant, however, based on her lack of memory of what happened, believes that that amounts to sexual assault and made a complaint to the police and then the accused was prosecuted on that basis. And the judge makes a comment that the jury took about an hour to deliver their verdicts of not guilty and also refers in the cost certificate. It's not super quick though, is it? No, not minutes. necessarily. Um, refers – they might have liked the lunch that they were being provided Depends or something. Depends on the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, also – Refers then to... So they don't normally count lunchtime, do they? Like in reckoning the amount of time they've been out? Uh, oh, I think they do. If they're together. Hot lunch day on Friday when they come back with the verdict after lunch. Mm. They, they count, I think if they're together, they count it. They count that time, do they? I yeah, think so. Um, so it, then in the context of looking also at this timing issue of the deliberations, the judge went into a bit more detail about some evidence that the accused wasn't able to rely upon uh, in their defence. So we mentioned that tendency witness, CG. Uh, CG's evidence um, was allowed, as I said. However... There was evidence in relation to a number of other people against whom the complainant had made complaints that were not allowed to be admitted because of the provision in Section 294CB of the Criminal Procedure Act. Six people ultimately were identified as falling into that category. Only one CG was able to give evidence. So six people that... Went to the this issue of, of yes, and went to this issue of tendency 
um, when she had sex in an alcoholic blackout to accuse the partner of sexual intercourse without consent simply because she couldn't remember the events. And the judge says something like, if, if the jury had known that, well, they would have been lickety split kind of with their verdicts. Um, but they Oh, okay, that was the context in which the one hour thing was said. Yeah, they weren't able to um, consider that material as part of their decision-making process. So remembering talking about costs in um, criminal cases, act certificate provisions, there's this inquiry that needs to be made into if the, the hypothetical prosecutor um, armed with all of the information that's now available um, considered the case, would it have been reasonable to have instituted the proceedings? What His Honour says in this case is, look, actually... The prosecutor in this case who prosecuted the proceedings was armed with all the, the same information mm. that would be relevant to the inquiry um, of the hypothetical prosecutor. And, in fact, throughout the proceedings, the judge even invited the Crown to discontinue um, the proceedings um, referred to the case um, as being hopeless. Um, the, the evidence effectively in relation to what actually happened during the sex came from the accused because the complainant couldn't remember. And uh, the accused's account was she instigated and enthusiastically participated in all of the sex acts. That was the only factual account about the circumstances of the sex, which goes not only to consent but also his um, state How of mind as to consent. No, the accused said that. Oh, the accused said that. And that was the yeah, only version. because oh, she had no memory. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... And what was the evidence of intoxication? The evidence of intoxication... In of this, the extent of it. Yeah, so the evidence was that she'd been drinking with a friend during the day quite heavily, um, sort of from about 11 till 4 or something like that. This happened, um, the, the, the accused went over to her place later in the night and then they did some sort of extrapolations. Um, at, an expert gave some evidence about what, the levels of the complainant's intoxication or blood alcohol level would be um, at different times. And it ranged from at 8.30pm, most likely 0.275 to midnight, 0.217. It's pretty high. Um, on the That's pretty high. assumption um, – that the last alcoholic beverage consumed was at 5pm and then on the assumption that the she continued to consume alcoholic beverages after 5pm and until midnight, which was part of the evidentiary picture, the most likely ranges were 0.189 at 8.30, 0.182 at 10.30 and 0.217 at midnight. So did the Crown put the case as... She may have enthusiastically uh, consented in a colloquial sense to the sex, but on our case, she was too. She was so intoxicated 
that you will find that she didn't in fact consent. Was that the way the Crown put it? Like the Crown... So the Crown opened opened the case to the jury um, and the judge says opened in a way on a fundamental mischaracterisation of the law, um, telling the jury that in New South Wales, if a person was severely intoxicated, they were not capable of consent. Yeah, that's wrong. It's just a factor to consider. That's right. And so the judge says um, he later agreed with me when I pointed out that that was not the law that applied to this case and it is still not the law, but rather a finding of serious intoxication, if made, can be a factor that a jury can take into account. And the matter was corrected before the jury. Which is such an important sort of point, isn't it? Because... Much sexual activity takes place when people are very intoxicated. Absolutely. And to have a categorical rule that at some point, I mean, how would you apply that rule? It's, yeah. Yeah. It has to be a circumstance that you assess in each individual case, right? What's that? Um, who's the law, the Lazarus law that what's that came out? What's that one called? What's that yeah. Called? I mean, that sort of is, is relevant to this conversation in the sense that that's about the person who wrongly believed that the person consented even though they had no reasonable no reasonable basis to actually think that. But self-induced intoxication is generally to be disregarded, right, in relation to the view you form about whether the other person's consenting. Yeah. You disregard that. So this this issue is more about or is about because the first thing the Crown's got to prove is the person didn't consent. And this issue is about whether intoxication, a state of intoxication, means that she didn't consent. But the problem was the Crown put it wrongly. The Crown put she was incapable of consenting. Mm. And also the quite high readings have different uh, consequences or kind of implications depending on how frequently someone drinks alcohol because someone can have quite a regular drinking habit and have quite a high blood alcohol level without appearing very intoxicated to someone else. Um, And so that's, I think, an important factor to kind of bear in mind. Um, So his honour goes on to say... He thinks he feels like he knows a lot more about the other complaints and the circumstances of the complainant, um, having heard all the evidence um, on the costs application. And knowing what I know now, I've concluded that it was not possible for the applicant accused to have a fair trial without the introduction of the evidence of those other complaints, the, the five other people against whom the complainant had made those complaints. Um, then um, there are a few comments that the judge makes in the context of just determining the cost application that really go to this issue of decision-making within the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, decision-making around um, maintenance of proceedings, certifying of charges, um, and that some of the accused or some of the persons against whom the complainant has complained against also had proceedings brought against them. 
Um, one was recently acquitted in a trial before Judge Huggett and also received a cost certificate. Um, in light of um, what has come out in this or I should say following this decision in Martinez and that other acquittal, the DPP has also notified the representatives of another accused who's before the local court still that um, the proceedings were were going to be withdrawn and, in fact, they were withdrawn um, on the 21st of December this year. Unprompted, no... No bill application was yet sent in because there hadn't been enough time to sort of prepare it after this further material had come to light. So... I wonder if they all knew about each of the other cases. Like, do you think each of the people that were accused, that were that were charged following her accusation, were given the briefs for all the other allegations? The entirety of them too. Yeah, I wonder I if they, they were. were. I mean, this one knew... It, the point in time of the cost application, didn't they? And at the point of time, at least to some extent, of in respect the of one of them, force. Be- no, no. At least in respect of six of them, they knew. at the time of the two nine four CB yeah. application, because they sought to adduce that they evidence sought, right, and they, they lost. Yeah, yeah. But were they given in relation the whole, to one? Were they given the whole briefs of all of those? Just a quick update on that: the Whigs have since learned that in the case of Martinez, the accused was not disclosed the briefs or any information in relation to the six men against whom the complainant had similarly complained of sexual assault. However, in the circumstances of the accused knowing about the complaint against CG by virtue of being the complainant's confidant and support person and some awareness of other complaints, the accused issued a subpoena to the Commissioner of Police seeking records in relation to the complainant's history of making sexual assault complaints. The Commissioner of Police sought to set aside the subpoena arguing that there was no legitimate forensic purpose and there was a protracted dispute about production of these documents. But eventually the accused obtained access to the documents about the other complaints. And some of those six pleaded guilty, that's come out since, hasn't it? Yeah, so we'll talk about a press release that the DPP put out after um, this judgment. Uh, It was a press release issued on behalf of the director on the 15th of December, which says the director intends to make a complaint to the Judicial Commission concerning the judgment delivered by Judge Newlands in this matter. Uh, And perhaps if I just go to this, it will kind of highlight some of the key parts of the judgment that um, are engaged in terms of comments about the DPP decision-making process. The ODPP unequivocally rejects any suggestion that it makes prosecution decisions lazily or on the basis of political expedience or that it operates according to, quote, some sort of unwritten policy as the judge um, has speculated. Such remarks unfairly impugn the integrity of the Director of Public Prosecutions and the staff of the ODPP. Comments which fail to meet the minimum standards of temperance and impartiality expected of judicial officers have the capacity to undermine public confidence in the administration of justice. Can we just pause there for a second? Yes. That's the Director of Public Prosecutions for New South Wales making an allegation that a district court judge is intemperate or has been intemperate and has been partial. And has unfairly criticised the DPP. Yeah. but I I mean, I'm less... (laughs) An allegation of partiality in particular is quite a strong allegation to make against a judge and particularly when it comes from the Director of Public Prosecutions. And as someone pointed out to me, um, really if that allegation isn't made good, then 
there may be some sort of inquiry as to how that allegation was made. Mm. Is it normal to publicise the fact of a judicial commission complaint? And what's the legitimate reason to Before do that, even making it? Yeah, what's the legitimate reason to do that, do you think? I mean, I suppose it's her, it's the DPP defending herself. That's what she's really... She's got a right to respond to what the Australian writes about her, I think. That's mm. nothing wrong with that. Um, well, this was in direct response to the judgment. Oh, this, this is press in, release. Oh, was it? Not, not it to the Australian article. the report. Correct. Yeah. Oh, right. Before Sorry. it was okay. reported in the media. But are you entitled to defend yourself by saying, I'm making a complaint to another forum? I mean, sometimes I the DPP are, says um, we're appealing. Yeah. But that's a sort of but that's that's different, isn't pretty it? different, I think. That's sort of a matter of we've made a decision. We're going to let you know we've made a decision to appeal. Which it doesn't say, incidentally. No. Which is curious because if there's a partial – if a judge has been partial – You might have judicial review. You would might have, have a bias have issue. Review, because there's no statutory appeal from these cost decisions, but you can judicially review them. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. So the press release goes on. Yeah. Decisions about the institution – they didn't oppose the cost certificate, did they? Yes, they did. Oh, they did. Yeah, they, they did. did. Okay. They well, did. They Decisions about the institution and maintenance of a prosecution are made in accordance with the prosecution guidelines, which were developed in consultation with all stakeholders in the New South Wales criminal justice system. Each matter is assessed on the strength of the available evidence, including the reliability and credibility of witnesses, with the paramount consideration being whether the prosecution is in the public interest. The viability of a prosecution is constantly under review. It's well known that prosecuting matters involving highly intoxicated complainants involves complex issues of fact and law. In circumstances where the accused in their police interview acknowledged the complainant's level of intoxication and the impact this had on her capacity to consent, there was a factual issue in this matter to be put for a jury. Further, three separate accused have pleaded guilty to sexual offences in relation to the complainant. The ODPP is also concerned that the judge appears to misapprehend the operations of the ODPP, which are governed by the DPP Act. So those three matters that she's referring to... The pleas of guilty? The pleas of guilty. They were not in evidence uh, in Martinez's trial, correct? Correct. And we don't know so what offences... Why is she referring to them in the statement, do you think? It's not clear how it could be relevant to Martinez's trial if they're not in evidence. Or the decision-making about whether... Yeah. Martinez's proceedings were appropriate to be brought or Because it doesn't continue. even affect her credit, does it? Because of their pleas. So it's not like a jury has assessed her and said she's credible. I think what the DPP is saying is because of those three people pleading guilty, he either he is more likely to have been guilty when we made our prosecution decision and that was something we took into account, or objectively now he's more likely to have been guilty, therefore our decision is less susceptible to criticism. Is that what she's saying? That's what she's is saying, it? I think. I mean, it's weird. Does I'm people... not agreeing with that. No, no, that, I, don't, I don't even know I'm, if I'm that's what's being asserted. why that was a relevant thing to say in the press release. I, I yeah. can't think that it is except to just sort of try to tarnish the situation with this He's, of, he's guilty anyway type vibe. Yeah, or, you know, she's she's not as unreliable as you all sort of have been led to believe by the evidence that was properly adduced in the case of Martinez and properly judicially considered in the Maybe it means the that she's going to review it. She's going to review those pleas. 
I think there, oh. there would be some cause to review, wouldn't there, in, in light of no, the I don't ongoing. Think it means that. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because let's say let's say somebody makes complaints X Y Z and then goes on to make fifteen complaints of a similar nature that are proven to be false. That would be grounds I would have thought to at least have a look at and consider, even where pleas are made, because pleas are made on the basis of convenience. They may be lesser charges. Who knows? You know. Yeah, we should talk about that convenience, please. Right. So that's the notion that some people plead guilty not out of a genuine admission of guilt, but out of convenience because, yeah. for example, they might face a more serious charge or they want to get it over with, and the law recognises that as a valid plea. Basically, you might be charged with sexual assault and be offered an indecent assault plea, and you jump at that because it means you can avoid jail or yeah, do a few. Real classic scenario. Totally. Another quick update to clarify the situation. The Whigs have since learned that the three persons referred to in the DPP's press release who pleaded guilty in relation to the complaints made by this same complainant, KW, did not plead guilty to the sexual assault charges but some other type of charge or charges and they were not amongst the cohort of six men, BS, JR, DC, CJ, AS and JM, all unconnected to each other. And in relation to which the accused Martinez wished to call evidence in their defence to establish that the complainant had a tendency to make false or at least unreliable complaints in circumstances where she had enthusiastically instigated and participated in sexual activity but made a complaint of sexual assault in the context of an asserted intoxication and fragmented limited or no memory of sex yeah so just to kind of go in a bit more detail to what his honor said giving rise to then that press release by the director his honor said if it be right that the evidence was properly excluded, this is talking about the 294CB evidence of the other complaints and her kind of tendency. Um, and if it be right that there was not sufficient circumstances to justify a permanent stay on the basis that because it's a legislative provision, you can't just get a stay because of the operation of that law, um, then the only, quote, check and balance left in the system to prevent an injustice was prosecutorial discretion. That discretion was sadly lacking here. I do not believe it was properly considered at all. Rather, I think the prosecution took the lazy and perhaps politically expedient course of identifying that the complainant alleged she had been sexually assaulted and without properly considering the question of whether there was any evidence to support that allegation, just prosecuted so as to let the jury decide. And then... Um, goes on to say, I do wish to record that I am left with a deep level of concern that there is some sort of unwritten policy or expectation in place in the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions of this state to the effect that if any person alleges that they have been the subject of some sort of sexual assault, then that case is prosecuted without a sensible and rational interrogation of that complainant so as to at least be satisfied that they have a reasonable basis for making that allegation, which would include to at least being satisfied that the complainant has a correct understanding of the legal definition of sexual assault or sexual intercourse without consent. And one of the issues I think also that came up in terms of just the decision-making process is... When the judge invited the solicitor advocate, so an employed solicitor prosecuting on behalf of the director, um, to consider discontinuing the proceedings partway through the trial, um, there was a discussion and his honour says, 
a discussion where it became clear to me that he felt he was bound by instructions to continue the proceedings unless and until he had obtained instructions from the Officer of Director of Public Prosecutions to the contrary. I expressed to him at the time, and I will say it again, that I believe this is a substantial flaw in the system set up within the DPP of this state. Such an arrangement is in direct conflict with the obligations of barrister and solicitor advocates appearing in this court. They are required to form their own individual subjective views as to whether proceedings should be commenced and continued and have an obligation, regardless of instructions, not to commence or proceed with cases if they form the view that they have no prospects of success. This apparent policy of the DPP, it seems to me, puts all advocates appearing on the DPP's instructions, but more importantly, those of them that are actually employed, either by the DPP or some related entity, into a position of intolerable conflict. We've talked about this before, haven't we? We have. We talked yeah. about it at Mark Dennis's um, CPD when we did that episode on prosecu- um, you know, prosecuting the prosecutor yeah. or, or whatever, you know, scrutinising the prosecutor. So it's worth noting that the power to discontinue proceedings after committal is for the, or after indictment for the director alone, right? The question arises that the, the question arises what happens in the circumstance where a practitioner, employed solicitor, crown prosecutor, salaried crown prosecutor forms the view that the matter should not be run um, and they are instruct and the director doesn't know billet. Mm. Now, that, but that seems, I think is quite a common situation. Oh, common. Well, yeah. I, but what, what should happen? What, what, what should, and and my, I think yeah. that the advocate has to refuse to prosecute consistent with their ethical obligations. If they're a barrister, they return the brief. If they're an employed solicitor, they have to confront the fact they might lose their job. But so when I well, started in the DPP but if, in Canberra, or, or that was yeah, the sure. So when I started prosecuting the ACT, yeah. there was an accepted practice. As a Crown Prosecutor, not so much, I don't think, in local court matters. I think more in in trials that if you formed the view there wasn't reasonable prospects, that you wouldn't be compelled to run it and it would just be reallocated internally. I mean, you can't But then what? So someone else Correct. would do it? Because but I what think, if they feel like there's no reasonable well, prospects? Well, I think eventually it would land with the director. Hook. Where you, that you don't have that safeguard in place in New South Wales. But that seems a bit I don't problematic. Think that in place. Where no, I don't think it's problematic in this sense that the matter would then be reallocated. Another prosecutor might form a different view or the director's formed a different view. So someone else might take a different view. But, but you've all got ethical obligations and you're all engaging in those ethical obligations, whereas you don't have that now. And you would not compel someone to do it against that view. Yeah. I would. Whereas that I would. seems to have gone. Well, is that right? Like, I, I can't believe. And I'm not prepared to assume that the director of public prosecutions or her managers would punish in any way, including in a career advancement way, any solicitor who returned a brief on an ethical basis. I'm I mean, not if, I'm not going to make that accusation against anyone. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is there is – I'm saying quite a different thing, right? So yeah. what I'm saying is there is an accepted practice in the DPP – In the ACT or here. No, here. Yeah. That – you delegate that decision-making. So, for example, you've got a view that there should be a no bill. You must put it up to the director's chambers. And you don't have authority to act on it. And you don't – well, you don't have authority, as I understand it. The director's chambers makes the decision and that you follow that decision. That's but it's the, the second part of it that's, that's the problem. That's right. That's part. the problem because yeah, so but that's, in as I, I mean, as I perceive it from my criminal practice, which is now ended, that 
is the practice. Well, that's going to expose a lot of solicitors and crowns to potential liability, isn't it? I don't know. If it's if 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 it, and if they're in fact advising discussion because does the rule so the rule in the bar rule, for example, is premised on an individual practitioner forming a view, right? Yep. But do you take a more unitary view in the case of an organisation like the DPP? Is it quite valid for the DPP to make the call? Hell no. So I I don't think so because the DPP can never be across all the matters to the degree that you need to be across to make that decision, first of all. Yeah, I know, but she doesn't have to be because she's got delegates, right? Yeah, but... She's got deputies who are... Have the power they don't have indictments. the capacity to They've be across all the matters. Would, which would work in tandem with the bar rules, which states take responsibility for your actions. Yeah. Look, I think it's worth referring to another press release that the DPP put out in June of 2023 in response to some reporting in the Australian newspaper about the prosecution of sexual assault matters. Where three judges had raised issues with effectively the same sort of thing. Same sort of thing as yeah. a loose word, but it's that's same, right. right. Including so, two ex-prosecutors. Yeah. One of them was the case of DS, where um, her honour Judge Was said things like a prosecutor is required to do more than shepherd incredible and dishonest allegations of sexual assault through the criminal justice system, leaving it to the jury to carry the burden of decision making that ought to have been made by the prosecutor, and and other comments in that vein. And the statement that the DPP put out at that in response to that was um, included this. um, The guidelines have been and continue to be applied with diligence and care by prosecutors within the ODPP. Each matter is assessed on the strength of the available evidence, um, etc. And that to me suggests that individual prosecutors are actually vested with the authority to make decisions according to the guidelines. But my experience is that that is not what happens. No, no, well, that is true. I think the question is to what extent, right? Because Crown prosecutors at a certain point have the authority, but at a certain point, I think you might have said this earlier, Manny, it has to go to the director's chamber. Well, so, so this, it, you ch- firstly, the director's chambers is a construct, Right? There's no legislative director's chambers. There's the director and apparently there's a group of people, lawyers around the director that constitute the director's chambers. As well as the deputies. As well as the deputies. But and on that note, it's interesting, the press release says the following comments can be attributed to a spokesman, spokesperson rather, for the ODPP. Again, the ODPP, I don't know quite what that is in terms of there are statutes that create the director that vests the director of public prosecutions with an office and power and there's statutes that create vest crown prosecutors with duties and powers and functions right and one that the decision to no bill as i said to to discontinue proceedings after committal is solely in the hands of the director and there's policy reasons for that right so that's under legislation that's a, but but there are other it's not clear to me that the Director of Public Prosecutions can in any one case give a give any crown salaried Crown prosecutor any instruction on how that case is to be run. I, I, I it's not clear. I'm not saying it's not the case, but there are certain things, for example, 
the functions of a Crown Prosecutor under Section 5 of the Crown Prosecutions Act are to conduct proceedings on behalf of the director. So not to not to act as the director's legal representative, but to conduct the proceedings, mm. right? Um, there is, under Section 13 of the Director of Public Prosecutions Act, the director can make guidelines, which we're all familiar with. Subsection, thir- subsection 2 of Section 13 says... Guidelines may not be furnished in relation to particular cases. Mm. Now, if they can't furnish guidelines, how could the DPP... Make the decision. Mm. Section 20... Mm. But that is what is appearing. happening. Right? I mean, she can appear uh, in the case. Let, let me yeah, go, she, she can appear. Actually, of let, me go, let me go to Section 20 of the Director of Public Prosecutions Act. The director has got... Um, the, is invested with the function of doing anything incidental to the functions of the director. Subsection 2, the director may advise advise and assist any Crown Prosecutor uh, and so on in respect of the conduct of criminal proceedings. So it's appropriate, I think, for the Director to be saying, look, I think you should, this is my advice on how you should proceed here. But I don't know that the Director's got any power. And what's weird is you turn up in the District Court list with, say, an adjournment application and the Crown say, I need to get instructions. Well, who are they getting instructions from about whether to adjourn a matter? And uh, as I say, I might be wrong. I might be reading legislation wrong. The director may have the power to adjourn. But if it compels someone to, to make put a to particular make position in relation to an adjournment. Oh, yeah, or you have to lead policy. tendency. I think it's all internal policy. But it is. But it so might be outside power. And it, what, what's the point of having, the crown of having a salaried Crown prosecutor yeah. who costs what, like – I don't know, if they work 200 days a year, they cost about 1400 a day, well, and more, plus on costs. More relevantly, having a statute. Because yeah. you might pay people, employ them to follow the directions of the director, but why have the Act, which I presume is designed to create statutory independence for them? That's right. And certain conditions and all that, quasi-judicial sort of tenure. But I mean, that the point is that it kind of... Those policies tend to capture. So if you have external briefed barristers, then they're going to return the briefs because they're personal responsibility and they've got other sources of work. If you're captured and there's a policy that says you can't apply, f- you can't agree to an adjournment, or like you, what the hell you is have it? What to a oppose, waste of time and money. You have to make a detention application or oppose bail, mm, which is something came up as a policy after, after the Lint inquiry. It was, I think it was you know, called the Man Monis policy where – because there'd been criticism of the DPP for not opposing bail in relation mm. to Man Monis for some other proceedings. You know, there's then- an interesting nexus here, right, between the criticisms of the quality of prosecutorial decision-making and the, the, the reduction of the independence of individual prosecutors. And I say that because... Sorry, just say, just take so that out again. So I think there's a nexus here between these criticisms that have been made of the quality of prosecutorial decision-making. So this criticism that's being made, they're not engaging with credibility properly. Mm. You know, they're running hopeless cases. Mm. And this structural issue where individual case officers, to put it that way, are not allowed to make the actual decision on whether something proceeds. It has be- to be. I think there's a nexus because I know from my own experience that... When you're seized of a matter and you've prepared it and you're going to run it, you have a very intimate knowledge of the case and you'll form your own views. When you're sitting at a distance and you're reviewing on paper, 
And more importantly, you don't have to get up and open to the jury and close to the jury. And you don't have to deal with the complainant and explain things to the complainant. It's much easier to say, no, just run it because you don't have to run it. And also, I think there's a... We're now at a point where they don't even identify the decision makers. No, that's right. And that was something that came up in Martinez. So the judge... Um, had this exchange with the trial advocate where they said, um, you know, who who is the certifier, basically? Um, and the solicitor advocate refused to give the name of the person who had apparently certified the proceedings. Claiming privilege. Yeah. I don't know what kind of privilege. It's not set out. Mm. But it's the signature... Uh, it, I don't. Know, I mean, I don't understand how there could be a privilege claim over a public over a signature over a pro, over a certificate that is tendered mm. in court. But my point, I think, is that well, but I mean, we bizarre, often but don't know who makes the actual decision. No. There's not transparency. I mean, th- this press release suggests that individual prosecutors seized of a case are the ones applying the guidelines and making the decisions, but that is not the reality. Does in it New suggest South Wales. that? I don't even I think, think it, it says does. The ODP. No, it says. The guidelines have been and continue to be applied with diligence and care by prosecutors within the ODPP. Yeah, it doesn't say acting in exactly what capacity. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we should put the contrary argument here, right? And the contrary argument is you need to have this system in place of directors' chambers deciding whether matters proceed or matters are discontinued or... For consistency. For consistency to ensure quality decision-making because otherwise you get... Anomalies and... we all know that this to some degree would be the case, right? Like, let's say every Crown prosecutor was an island unto themselves with unqualified power in their own discretion to decide exactly what happened in every matter. You would get outrageous decisions. You would get anomalies. You would get anomalies sometimes. And you would get potentially... Situations where quite vulnerable complainants were not permitted to have their allegations put kind of court. properly yeah. put to the court because it was it was easy to kind of push nurse. over them I'm in some sort of consultation process yeah. that's bogus, etc. So I get the and you know I think that's the importance of of a culture where. You have in place internal structures and systems, but you also have a culture when, you know, the rubber hits the road that you don't compel people to run cases that they genuinely have formed the view don't have reasonable prospects. But I think that... And I'm not saying that, that, that that's not in place in the New South Wales DPP. I haven't worked there, but these criticisms tend to raise that issue at the very least. Yeah. I mean, but I think well, they I've also tend that, to raise I mean, this... No, I, should, I, should, I should correct that. I've done cases where the Crown Prosecutor has said to me, I know this matter's going to lead to a verdict that's quite inevitable and I wouldn't run it myself, but a decision's been made. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely well, that's, I mean, that's unethical, right? That, to, run, to continue to act in that circumstance is unethical. In my I opinion. think it depends, as I said before, on how you construe the bar rules in relation to who is there a unitary sense nah, in which there the has DPP to be an individual responsibility it's each individual professional conduct even if you're acting as a sort of agent well you're not you're not you so that's so the whole point actually, you're in a special position of prosecutor which comes with certain powers but it also comes with certain 
obligations? Well, I think I think that what needs to happen is the decision maker needs to be made clear. So if it is going to be the director in every case, on every minor issue, like, you know, can we vacate the trial? I mean, I've had matters where the director's chambers have insisted on sentence facts or oh, a yeah, matter in particular involved, where, they've, so, where they've insisted on sentence facts that are contradicted in the bre- brief of evidence, like directly contradicted by things that the complainant has said and the negotiation process has completely broken down because the Crown Prosecutor is saying to me, I agree with you, this is unreasonable, but I'm being directed to do this. And my client ends up having to make the decision, well, I'm going to take the plea on the basis of the um, like bogus facts because I don't want to go to a trial for an aggravated sexual assault where I might do t- like definitely do so much more time. Yeah, I, as I- and that just seems to me like a completely just broken system. Well, I mean, I, I think if it's going to be – the director who's making the decisions and people in chambers advising those people should all be identified by name. The act, the legislation should be amended to make clear that it is the director who is instructing in each of the cases so that the responsibility falls upon her, right? So that if there are a whole bunch of cases that are falling apart, it's not the prosecutors who get blamed, for the individual prosecutors, it's the DPP. And, she, no, there, are, and, and there is accountability. But so she the can, bar rules have to be amended then? Well, hang on. Then, no, because then it's clear that the junior, that the solicitors and the and the crown prosecutors and so on can return the brief. It's it's once you've got that clarity, it's abundantly clear. Mm. And so, and I mean, then the question really becomes: Do we need well, should there be crown bar- prosecutors at all? Because should it would be a lot cheaper, uh, I think, to you, simply outsource it. I mean, advocates are not to be mouthpieces. That's a fundamental. That's right. And, and that seems to be the territory before. that we're in. I prosecute. You prosecute. I prosecute. Why You're are not the prosecutors on the payroll? A mouthpiece, but that's generally understood in respect of your client, right? Yeah, I yeah. know, but that's the way the that prosecutors are often treating the director, the director is that they're receiving instructions from the director who's their client. I know, but the director is the ultimate repository of this power. No, no. Well, that, that, that's an open question. Because yeah. Crown prosecutors can conduct prosecutions, albeit in the name of the director. Correct. Well, but what their does that function mean? is well it, my understanding of that was that the and they, they can sign decisions. indictments. Yeah. They are conducting well, they do sign indictments. They, right. 100%. And they're making day to day decisions. And this this came up in um, when was it? A few a few years back. Let me just get it up my note on this. Um, in twenty seventeen there was an email that was sent around by a senior Crown Prosecutor to other Crowns, directing them to do certain things. The senior Crown Prosecutor, Mark Tedeschi, to the entire organisation. Yeah. And then President of the Bar Association, Moses SC, wrote to then DPP BAB SC, um, a fairly strongly worded letter, but he says... He said, amongst other things, the Bar Association has serious concerns regarding the content of the email, which unfortunately displays a fundamental... in the misunderstanding of the independent role of Crown Prosecutors. We are troubled by the points made by the Senior Crown Prosecutor in this communication, which appear to view the role of Crown Prosecutors as mere agents rather than independent counsel exercising discretion in individual 
cases, a Crown prosecutor has a duty to exercise independent judgment over and above the role to simply act as a contradictor to the defence and went on to discuss rules 42 and 43 of the of the rules and said... And Tedeschi withdrew that email then, didn't he? And um, can I just quote from what Tedeschi said in the sort of yep. final paragraph? He says this, The whole system of criminal justice in trials, sentences and appeals depends upon the Crown prosecutor acting as a contradictor to the defence. It is not the role of a Crown prosecutor to make concessions to the defence case. In those instances where a Crown prosecutor wishes to make a concession, it should first be checked with the senior Crown prosecutor or a deputy senior Crown prosecutor to ensure that it is appropriate. And this is this is the Bar Association's response to that in the letter to then Director Bain. I mean, concessions are made all the time, to begin with. And in terms of checking, I mean, checking... There's no problem, obviously, with someone yeah, getting a second opinion. opinion. Advice, but not right? so Putting in place a systematic process where you delegate every decision-making... And it's vetoed. Yeah, that seems to be in tension with what Moses is saying. Well, it does. He says this not only conflicts with the independence, says Moses in the letter, but also raises practical difficulties. How, for example, is the Crown to obtain that approval in the event during the course of a trial when a decision needs to be made about a potential? And we know that there are situations where Crowns would go, oh, I've been instructed to run tendency. It's Mm. like, what? How can you be instructed to run tendency? And I mean, I fear and I've... People, I hear this, I, I, I struggle to believe it, but I hear that there's a hierarchy that's developed at the DPP where Crown prosecutors are having transcripts reviewed by senior Crown prosecutors, right? Did you do as you were instructed to do? Now, I can't believe that's happening. If that's happening, that's... That's definitely happening. Right? And yeah. I've done cases where, yeah, where the Crown tells you that they're reviewing my openings and closings. and mm. So yeah, the Crowns are being performance-managed... It's it's but in a way that I think creates a culture or per- perpetuates a culture where crowns and employed prosecutors fear more criticism from their boss, the director, or within that kind of work context than they do fear any criticism for not complying with their ethical duties in some judgment from the court. Ah. Well, you know, you're rarely going to be held to account for... Like, this breach of these rules that we're talking about, which is running arguments you don't... haven't sort of bona fide formed a view about, running cases with no reasonable prospects, they're not ethical breaches that people generally are going to be held to account for, right? Because yeah. it's just eye of the beholder stuff, ultimately. And the verdict is returned, the person's not guilty, everyone just goes home. Whereas breaching what is has been constructed as internal policy, well, the breach is going to be apparent. You haven't followed the direction. So, Even so though the, the direction crown, might be inconsistent right? with, the, with the guidelines. That's right. But, I mean, you're going to be ultimately seen to have breached it and then there'll be a question about contract renewal because these people are on contracts, right? Well. These crowns, are so, they? So, so this is interesting. Crown prosecutors are statutory appointments, right? Fixed term. Fixed term, seven years, repeatable. Seven, right? yeah, seven. Now, they are appointed for a 12-month term as a matter of practice. Uh, in an acting first. position. In an acting position. The Act provides that they cannot act in that position for more than 12 months. Anyway, they're appointed for seven years. 
and then they can be reappointed. Now, it used to be life, and they got rid of that because, in short, they were lazy people who weren't doing the work. I think that was the justification for it. I think there needs if there are if crown prosecutors are going to remain, then they should and remain as statutory appointments. And where it needs to land is that they shouldn't be able to be reappointed. So you mm. do you, you do a five year stint or a seven year stint, that's it. and that's it. So you can be independent. And you have to be because you have to worry about your reputation when you go back to the bar. They should make it longer than seven then if they're going to do that. Well, or, oh, yeah, or make it fifteen years, ten or fifteen, 10 or 15 years, or yeah, fifteen years and a pension, right? It used to be life tenure, didn't it? Used to be life yeah. changed, yeah. yeah, or sixty-five or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that circumstance, they were independent. But there was also performance problems. Is sure, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I think no. the performance issues that were seen to be a problem were more about a lack of vigor. You guys have been saying, well, appoint them for fifteen years; that'll maintain their independence. But I and kind of ensure that they comply with their proper duties as a Minister of Justice. Mm. But I don't think it necessarily would. The problem I think is, there are deep cultural issues at play that need to be addressed. The problem is that every decision that is kicked up to the Director's Office, or whatever it's called, Director's Chambers, is a expense that we could otherwise avoid on the criminal justice system. So... Every time a Crown says, oh, I need to get instructions on that, can we adjourn to that? Cause a delay, Mm. right? And that might cost who knows how much, $5,000 a go. You know, if you've privately briefed a Jacilca and a junior, whatever, it might cost 15 grand. But what are the judges saying? The judges hearing a a Jacilca go, excuse me? They crack it sometimes, don't they? They get stroppy about it, but they can't ultimately control it. Well, I mean, Judge Newland's invited the prosecutor to withdraw it. He found in his decision that not only would he were the verdicts inevitable, he wouldn't have found for the Crown on a balance of probi- probability civil case and he yeah, formed the view that man, the accused so was in fact innocent. And th- there was a time when the judges were sufficiently respected that that statement would have led to a Crown scurrying back to the director and going, come on, judge, whatever says no, billet. I think this thing's got no leads and it would be done on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to have had matters negotiated to final disposition, no bill, in the morning with a discussion with the Crown. Yeah. Right. Same sort of thing in, in Judge Wash's decision Judge Wash's decision on DS. She said, such was the state of the evidence that I formed the view during the trial that had the jury returned a verdict of guilty on any count, I would have presided over a clear miscarriage of justice. And it's because you there's know? no cost, um, right? Like, that's the difference here, right? You can't hit them up. Well, you can. You can get this cost certificate. No, right, but Jim's right, though. Budget. Jim's right, though, in the sense it doesn't come out of the DPP budget. And, and it's, it's not also a cost not order. cost it's follows the event. So it's like, slap us. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, to be honest. I mean, I'm not saying that it should be anything different necessarily, but Th- that's what doesn't. Civil procedure. Yeah, and there is. You rein them in. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there is political pressure. Effect. I know the director says that they don't act on political pressure and I'm prepared to take her at her word, but the political environment is such that if they were to make a mistake and let the wrong person go, or even the right person, they might get slapped heavily in the media. Mm. And that's, you know, I think politics needs to take its fair share of the... And even if the director's doing her abject best, which I'm sure she is not to be politically motivated, how can that not flow through to the mind of a young solicitor who's trying to make their career? I don't want to be the guy who lets this person go. Mm. They're only human at the end of the day and, you know... 
So in preparation for this episode, I looked at the last five years of cost certificate matters in the New South Wales District Court for Sexual Offences, um, bearing in mind that many of these cost certificate applications occur in circumstances where the judgment never makes it onto case law. So it's not a kind of full um, set of cases. But there were 22 cases that I found um, Cost certificates were awarded in 19, so rejected in three. The Crown, it seems, almost exclusively opposed the issue of certificates. In one case, they said, we don't oppose it, but we make no concessions as to merits of the investigation or the prosecution. Um, And... Some of the judges made comments about the timing of deliberations, less than an hour, 25 minutes, that kind of thing. Um, Many of them were cases where credibility and reliability issues were the key issue. It was a one complainant case. They were the star witness um, and... Many of the cases involved no-bill applications that um, were rejected. Um, in a case of Nealor 2022, New South Wales District Court 333, the bill, no-bill application was 41 pages, excluding annexures. Um, in case of DT 2021, New South Wales District Court 546, the no-bill application was made in July 2020, but the proceedings weren't terminated until August 2021. In various matters, the accused spent time in custody. Indeed, Martinez spent eight months in custody. Eight months. Um, Bail refused on allegations, which a judge has found, um, indeed, they are an innocent person. Um. So, yeah, look, I think more – we need to do some more digging on this as well and kind of look at look at the picture more systemically because there are certainly these cases that um, seem to highlight that there's, there's a bigger problem at play. These aren't sort of just – anomalous cases. Maybe it's a question of training. I mean, if, if the Crowns are, in fact, as the Director says, they are assessing the credibility of each of these witnesses, but nevertheless pressing all, on with the counts, maybe they just need to be trained to better assess the credibility. That's an interesting point, though. Right? Like, yeah. maybe maybe it's maybe it's that, that. I mean, they should be experts in assessing credibility. Well, they should be, but maybe yeah. they're not. I you also know? think there's a failing often in the investigation phase where a complainant comes forward, they make an allegation, the police, in terms of their investigation of that allegation, basically just take a bare account from the complainant about what they say happened. Um, even – and then they might – you know, arrest and interview the accused and take an account from them. But even where the accused's account raises issues, the kind of investigation stops. That's what happened in DS. There was CCTV footage. There were text messages that tended to prove the accused's version but that basically ignored. And, you know, you don't really often know much about a complainant on the face of a brief – um, beyond what they're asserting 
by way of offences and often the picture is a much a much bigger one in terms of the things that bear upon their credibility and reliability but there's just often not investigation done into things like yeah but that's not always the that. case right like it's not i've always, done plenty but of cases it, where the cred the adverse credibility picture has been very clear pre-trial, me too right? i mean I reckon, what about jack bain exactly i reckon one way of looking at this is this right so prosecutorial decisions are immune from judicial review right there are special category of decisions that are immune One of the new emerging, or not that new, but emerging, recently emerged areas of judicial review relies on this idea of intellectual engagement. So if you can demonstrate that the decision maker hasn't intellectually engaged with the issues, then there'll be jurisdictional error. I think what we have here in prosecutorial decision making in many of these cases is a failure to intellectually engage with credibility. Or sloppy a real engagement by the non-decision maker, yeah, uh, who who gets overrided, yeah. And I think there's a culture of, in particular types of matters, leaving credibility issues to the jury. I think there's a bit of a culture of of acquiescing to complainant wishes, but yes. I think what infuses the whole thing, I think, is often in the context of unreviewable, non-transparent decision-making, a failure to intellectually engage your credibility. That's that's where I land on this. And my practical sort of thought is, do the prosecution guidelines need to be amended to spell out specifically a requirement to intellectually engage your credibility? And that the actual prosecutor appearing is the one that applies the guidelines. I think yeah, that's the only way you can ha- do it point. consistent yeah. with the legal profession conduct rules. Yeah, there should be a certificate, right? There, there should be a certificate that's, that goes up with the indictment at the start of the trial that says, I, prosecutor name, certify that, blah. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, they're, they're reasonable. Yeah. They're, in my view, they're having considered yeah, the credibility, sort of the evidence, etc. Because you know et how in I certain civil proceedings, before you can file... Oh, sorry, mate. Go, go, go. Yeah, no, that's all, I'm done. But that's, that, should, that, should say, that should say many of those things, right? You know how in certain civil proceedings, before a statement of claim can be filed, yeah. there's a certification requirement by a legal process. practitioner yeah, yes. in terms of... Re- and that has to be yeah. signed off on the initiating process yeah. um, before it can be filed by the solicitor, you know, seized of the matter. Mm. I, I yeah. think... The prosecutor, yeah. at a minimum, and they're all being ethical. So, at a minimum, it could be the ethical requirements that the bar rules provide for. Yeah, could be a little bit, should be a little bit more than all reasonable inquiries about disclosure have been done. Could be added to it, right? So, I think that there's this really simple statutory reform that could happen overnight. It's almost reasons for decision is what you're talking about. Yeah, well, which is interesting because again, this is unreviewable, non-transparent decision-making with no requirement to give reasons. That's that's the context of it. Yeah. yeah. And what you're really saying is there should be a record of the decision. That's what you're that's saying. That's right. It's not yeah. even the and reasons someone for who's it, actually accountable for it. For, because at the moment it's sort of this amorphous, oh, it's gone to director's chambers and it's just kind of – I mean, they, they will remain unaccountable in, a, in practice because, because it's unreviewable. But what it means is that they will have to attest 
to having done that thing. Yeah. And then, you know, every five million times when an inquiry is held and it shows that they haven't complied, they're on the hook. So it's, or it's, it's a professional it's a, conduct complaints. Yeah, but good luck, right? It's you could make you could make those complaints today. I know you can, and nobody does for the same reasons that nobody will, even if they sign the document, yeah. right? What those, do you think those reasons are? What what that nobody complains? Yeah, because it's too hard to make out. Everyone's a systems player. It's hard to make out. All of the the questions are amorphous, like more is amorphous. The questions are like difficult to unpatch. So, did did Joe Bloggs think there was reasonable prostates in this case? Yes, I did. Show otherwise. Right? Good luck. Mm. Can't do it. Well, you can in the situation where the Crown says to you, look, I don't think this has prospects, but I've been directed to prosecute it. Well, if you want to give evidence about what a Crown prosecutor says to you, that's a matter for you. But, I mean, I wouldn't do that. It's trial by media, trial by podcast. But, like, the, <laughs> the can, other – We can the other, right now. The other power – So I, I Thanks think, to your contribution, I, I Jim. Think, there you go. I think, I think a certificate to be handed up is – and it would have to be real, not like the – Bullshit EAGPs to have to hit the points. And I think the other power that should be done is that judges should be given the power to th- keep things at half time, right? They yeah. had the, uh, what's it called now? They the Prasad got taken yeah. away by the High Court. Mm. Prasad should be brought back by statute. And in fact, judges should be given mm, the same power that Prasad the CCA back has. By statute. The use of a Prasad direction had been an accepted practice in Australian law for over 40 years until 2019. In light of the case of Prasad, a judge could give a direction to the jury at the close of the prosecution case, often referred to by lawyers as half time, that they can bring back verdicts of not guilty at any time without hearing any more evidence or the closing addresses. This was in a situation where the judge was of the opinion that the evidence was insufficiently cogent to justify a verdict of guilty. In a 2019 appeal, by the DPP following not guilty verdicts in a homicide case in Victoria, the High Court unanimously upheld the DPP's appeal, deciding that the Prasad direction was contrary to law and should not be given to a jury determining a criminal trial. If, if it, the, the CCA can acquit somebody of on a miscarriage of justice mm. ground, it beggars belief why judges aren't invested with the same power. Totally. I mean, right? what was That's Judge Wass to do if she... Yeah. She says, I'm, I'm sending you off jury to go and deliberate and return your verdicts. Already having formed the view that if any verdict came back guilty, it was a miscarriage of justice, but her own had no power to, to stop that. If only we knew someone who could introduce a bill to do this. Minor reforms. <laughs> for listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mintz